We probably all had the experience of someone else resisting one of our brilliant ideas. I mean, you suggest something a little different, a little new, a little unexpected, and you get the exhale, the crossed arms, the raised eyebrow, the involuntary head shake, the pretend we didn't hear it and carry on. You remember how that feels, how it feels in your body, being not seen, being not heard? Well, you know what's almost as irritating, perhaps even more so, when you're the person resisting your own good idea. You come up with an intriguing idea, you get a hint of your own ambition, you sense what might be possible for you, and then you dance around it, you collude with your own ambivalence, you team up with the status quo to back away from this moment, this opportunity to unlock your greatness. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Lauren Nordgren is a teacher at the Kellogg School of Management and also the co-author of the book, The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance that Awaits New Ideas. Because there are endless reasons why new ideas are not immediately embraced. When Lauren was doing the research for this, he looked at a number of the dynamics. What are the social dynamics we need to be aware of that will help promote the adoption of those ideas? Like, who should we target first? How do we nurture interest in ideas that we see as a better path? And how do we break down the inevitable resistance that we are going to encounter? Now, he's the co-author of a book. So I was really curious to know how the medium turned into being the message. In other words, what resistance did he notice when he was trying to co-write a book about resistance? And because he's a researcher, he turned to the data first. In collaboration science, there's often this phrase sometimes, it's called the paradox of teams. And it's the idea, so I'll do an exercise in a class where it's a team competition. And the fastest team will complete this exercise in maybe three minutes And the slowest teams, I'll stop it at 25 minutes and they just don't finish. And we'll occasionally have people do that as individuals, not in teams. And the very fastest person will maybe do it in like 12 minutes. And they don't see it yet. But when you put those scores up on the board, there's some very profound idea standing in front of them, which is that there is deep, incredible promise in collaboration. That's not to say working with a team or even a single other person is easy. It is harder to write a book with somebody because there's integration, right? There's so much integration of style and ideas. But if you're willing to get through it, and maybe if you have some tools that will help you navigate it up front, Mm. you know, this is, I feel comfortable saying the end result in this case is about the promise of it because I know that this book, and it also speaks to. So, my co author is a real different skill set. So, he's a real thought leader in human centered design, design thinking. And so, this book is really a unification of related, adjacent, but ultimately right. different perspectives and school of thought. So, it was a lot harder to do this with someone. But I think in this particular case, we made something that neither of us could have done right. individually. You're a three-minute team, not a 25-minute encounter. We were team. a three-minute team. We were a three-minute team. But it was more challenging in a lot of ways. 
I mean, it reminds me a bit of, you know, Adam Grant's work in Give and Take, where it's like the goal of being a giver can be both the best and the worst of it. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how you do it. I mean, you talked about it's helpful to have some tools up front. How did you set things up at the start between you and David to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? Yeah. So I think the first principle is to over-communicate before any of the work begins <laughs> about commitments about, well, what do we do when someone's not hitting their commitments? Mm. What are our objectives? What is it we really want? Because it requires like mild leadership maturity at the beginning, but it makes it much easier to have those conversations later. So I think we did a pretty good job of that. There were things that we didn't even realize we needed to talk about and then later (laughs) did. But I think that was one really important rule to have to over communicate early on and not just hope for the best. I think the more it's just, let's just dive in and hope for the best, the more problematic it is. I think for us, another really important rule was to figure out what are the modalities of communication that bring us back to our kind of friendship and human connection. And doing this during a pandemic meant like there's certain ways that we could communicate where it was easier to start voicing frustration, to be more matter of fact, to not catch up, to not do a lot of things. So right. I think that was very important. Like, like here's a really interesting, I think, value that comes up in any collaboration, which is to what extent are we willing to make the other person feel uncomfortable if it means getting to something better? Right. This to me is like the real danger in a collaboration. Like one danger is that it becomes toxic. Yeah. But there's a kind of over affirmative toxicity. Yes. Which is kind of subtle, but it's like, no, we've had a lovely pastel colored time where we've agreed a lot, but the end result is a bit underwhelming. So I come from a lab research background where the default is skepticism. So I've Mm. grown up in a culture that's very comfortable telling the other person, I think you could do better. I think this idea could be better. David comes from this kind of yes and culture, like creative (laughs) culture, where just anything I could say, he wants to be generous. Oh my God, I love it. It's brilliant. I love it. it. And we could do this. And those were really difficult things to reconcile. But that was for me always a point of, I think we're both very committed to the idea that we are always acting in service of the idea and the final outcome, right. not in service of our feelings in that moment, which doesn't mean that we don't treat the person respectfully and with kindness and other things. But I think this was a refrain of like, if you're agreeing with me because you've disagreed on the last two points and you've now feel some great emotional mm-hmm. obligation to just give me a win, like that is a violation of our collaborative social contract yeah was there something that you had to give up to collaborate at this high level oh well control (laughs) (laughs) control over time control over there were certain moments where i think there probably for both of us there's an anecdote or two that we would have maybe wanted to fight for and but ultimately the person had another point of view 
time. I think, what did we have to give up? Probably more, I think, time. I think doing this individually, there's an efficiency about it. It's a 12-minute team thing. Yeah. You could have got it written in 12 minutes, but yeah. there's something about the elegance of the solution. Mm-hmm. Lauren, what have you chosen to read for us today? I have chosen to read a poem. And I should say, I think often when someone puts forward a poem, it means they're a poetry person. <laughs> That's not true in this case, but it's one of my favorite poets by the name of Hart Crane. And it's called My Grandmother's Love Letters. By chance, have you encountered this before? I mean, I looked up Hart Crane because I hadn't heard that name or at least, you know, I studied literature at university. So I was like, that has a resonance, but I can't say I knew any of his work. So how did you come across it? If you're not a poetry person, how did it come into your life? I do. I mean, I do read some poetry. That's like jazz today where you're either like fully in that world <laughs> right. or you're not. And I'm, well, in fact, I have a, a niece who is a poet. Oh, brilliant. Sarah Rose Nordgren. She's quite a, an accomplished poet. So there's a kind of strain of emphasis of literature of many forms in my family. And I don't know if it was through her I don't like most poetry, but I like exploring poets mm. and poetry. And every once in a while, I think it's because of my hustle and ambition of being in your, you know, I'm now 42, but the early professional career, I'm, I'm certainly like mid stage, I suppose at this yeah. point, but where I didn't feel like I had time to read novels any longer. Right. For a long time, it's been short stories, poetry essays, but not long form. I can give 15 minutes to something. And I think it's because of that, I'm always, I'm mm. frequently looking at different poetry to see if something catches my eye. You know, I, I read a bit of poetry myself. And actually, I think a little bit, it almost applies to how you describe teams. Occasionally, you get a three-minute team poet where you're like, this is just amazing. Yeah. And then you come across a whole of 25-minute one, which is like, this poem is going on forever and going nowhere, and I'm going to move on. So I love that you picked a poem. So Lauren, over to you. Let's hear this wonderful poem. All right. This is Hart Crane's My Grandmother's Love Letters. There are no stars tonight, but those of memory. Yet how much room for memory there is in the loose girdle of soft rain. There is even room enough for the letters of my mother's mother, Elizabeth, that have been pressed so long into a corner of the roof that they are brown and soft and liable to melt as snow. Over the greatness of such space, steps must be gentle. It's all hung by an invisible white hair, it trembles as birch limbs webbing the air. And I ask myself, are your fingers long enough to play old keys that are but echoes? Is the silence strong enough to carry back the music to its source and back to you again as though to her? Yet I would lead my grandmother by the hand through much of what she would not understand. And so I stumble and the rain continues on the roof with such a sound of gently pitying laughter. Wonderful, thank you. What struck a chord for you there? What chimed as you read that poem? 
Well, first, I don't think there's any easy tie-in with the book. <laughs> so I've <laughs> chosen anything strategically. No, that's fine. Oh, there's a number of things. So what I see in this moment, to me, this is a poem about someone who has stumbled upon letters which are really kind of a, a window into someone's interior life of someone they care a great deal about. But what this represents for me is I have a fascination with the past, but also a sense of the frustration of never really being able to understand it and connect to it. Right. So in that poem, he refers to her as Elizabeth and not grandma. And I take that to mean he's trying to understand her as a human. Right. And I think of my grandparents who I never knew. And I think about how, although I've seen photos and stories have been passed mm -hmm. down, how quickly the past in any real meaningful sense gets lost. Right. And sometimes I often have this feeling of we are strangers to almost all generations and things past. And mm. I have a, a real interest in the natural world. So I spend much of my time out in a, a cabin in Wisconsin, and I spend a lot of time hiking there. And yeah. I have a, a similar feeling of when I move about the forest there, so much of what I see today would be unrecognizable. Like the forest as it naturally is would be unrecognizable to a First Nations person of 400 mm. years ago. Yeah. And this feeling of connection and wanting connection, but how quickly one loses any understanding of the past. That concept is interesting to me. And also there's a bittersweetness and a nostalgia. There's a tenderness to it that I find just emotionally appealing and resonant. That's beautiful. Thank you. I guess the question kind of connects to your book a little bit perhaps, but to the poetry as well, which is like, you're talking about how do we connect, but kind of reaching forward and reaching back, but also just reaching in the moment. How do we connect with the people there? Because it's in the connections with those people that those memories happen and you move from being a figure to being Lauren, to being a person, just like grandmother to Elizabeth. You know, as you hit the kind of your midlife, have you changed the way that you connect with people? If I change the way that I connect with people? Well, maybe that's, that question is impossible to answer. It might be. Well, I think certain things would be, I've evolved, I suppose, in the way I interact with people in much mm. the same way that I think would be familiar to many people as they get a bit older. And I think one realization is, I think when you're younger, you have less insight into that life is a wonderful, joyous thing, but also an inherently difficult thing. And so I think back to, I grew up in an unconventional household, but the most conventional suburban environment one could imagine, like right. white picket, just it couldn't be more conventional environment. <laughs> Control the list. Yeah, yeah, yes. And looking back at that as a child and seeing the parents of the suburban friends, mm. the, you know, the local 
friends who would ride bikes together and all that kind of deep Americana stuff. Everyone outwardly seemed to have a very controlled, perfect life. And you looking back at that now, and some because you learn about it, but just you now understand what life is like. I'm sure all of those families and people and relationships were wonderful in certain ways, but also marked with a lot of difficulty and struggle mm -hmm. in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that realization informs a lot about both professionally dealing with MBA students, dealing with people I'm working with, and personally is that that there is, no matter what the level of happiness and satisfaction is, that there's also struggle yeah. beneath the surface, which I guess, what is the point of that is the point is, of that is to, although I might often not live up to it, is it underscores kindness as a motive. You're part of, this is how your poem and your book, The Human Element, meet in my mind. It is about the weight of the status quo mm. and the weight of the past. And I feel that we are far more committed to the status quo than we realize. I mean, there are some people who are like, I stand for the status quo. But there are people like me who go, I don't stand for the status quo. And yet, <laughs> in ways that I'm not even aware of, the, the status quo offers me certainty and comfort and familiarity and patterns and status and authority and all sorts of ways that I feel more entwined in that than I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah. What can you offer in terms of perhaps understanding the pull of the status quo and understanding how to resist it if you're trying to help people overcome resistance that meets the new ideas? Yeah. I mean, first, let me say that is such a beautiful connection between what I read and what I think about and, and what the book is about. And I think this is a nice moment that speaks to the benefits that come with taking a risk. Because when I told my wife, I was, she asked, well, what's the point of, and I said, well, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling Michael might see a connection that I don't see. And so it's, the benefit of trust and giving up some control and allowing right. for an improvisational right. moment to right. occur. I'm trying to make this a three-minute team too, Lauren. That's right. That's <laughs> right. But yeah, there is, even outside of the kinds of incentives that you were identifying, like mm. it's the, a status quo system that one benefits from, there is deep pull toward the status quo in ways we really recognize and psychologists will give this a label and the label of this is the status quo bias mm -hmm. but i don't know that that captures its real power and you know i try and reveal this in some interesting ways one is i will ask people to identify the music of their childhood yeah the music of their decade and then i have them think about the music of the decade that came before or after and then <laughs> ask them which do you prefer and which do you believe is objectively better? <laughs> and maybe not surprisingly, 85% of people will pick the music of their decade as their preference. And Seriously, I mean, what are young people listening to right, today? Do right? they call that music? That's right, not music. Right. <laughs> but they also, at, at almost the same levels, will say it is objectively better. Right. And, you know, one of the examples I like about this is 
I like to make the point that Americans are socialists and Europeans are capitalists, at least as it pertains to their versions of football. Right. Right. Because (laughs) so if you look at American football, the NFL, it is a socialist system. It's a system in which if you win, you pick last. It is a system designed to create equality across the teams. The teams that do worse get the most resources. Big teams have to share all their money with the smaller market teams. We want to keep everything flat and equal. Right. Everything gets reset. Everything gets reset. And the opposite is true in Europe, of course, where it's you have the Real Madrid's and Chelsea's and that have make the Champions League, you get more money, you can buy more players, you can get even more successful. And, you know, you have the, what are they call Galacticos, I think, from yeah. the Real Madrid. Yeah. The success begets success. And yeah. there's no measure to try and counteract that. And if you ask staunch or even casual American or European football watchers, would you like to go toward the other system? <laughs> they will overwhelmingly say no. They like their system. And the reason we're laughing about all of this, of course, is because the political systems we endorse are the mirror opposite. And how do you possibly reconcile that? Well, it's because so much of what people like is not because that thing is objectively better. Mm. It's because it's what they know. Mm -hmm. We're often defending the system that we know, the thing we know, the idea in a company. It's like, well, we've always used that system. And yes, we'll invent arguments to explain mm-hmm. why it is better. Like some person could say, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I like this system because of these reasons. It's factually better. It's yeah. factually better. <laughs> yeah. And then this is not even a human. So you see this preference for status quo, even in the broader primate kingdom, it's called neophobia. But mm-hmm. so if you put a new toy, a new object in a chimpanzee enclosure at a zoo, the first reaction is not excitement. The first reaction is fear. The first reaction is anxiety. Now, within a couple days, that one scary thing is now the new favorite distraction. But that is a deep evolutionary response. In part, I suppose it could be argued that because familiarity signals that you have survived encounters with this thing in right. the past. So right. we're sort of wired for the familiar. Now, what does one do about it? Yeah. There are none of which is to suggest that breaking down this habit of the mind is an easy thing to do, but I've explored a number of different techniques. There are many ways that you can make unfamiliar things seem more familiar. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really big part of this. And so even take time. Like people need to acclimate. They need time to acclimate to new ideas. Right. And so much of what we do when we're trying to bring new ideas, new products, new social movements into the world, like our intuitions around influence and change are often opposite of what they ought to be. And so what the leader often does, the innovator often does is you find a problem you find the solution, you alone, and then you unveil it once you've perfected it. Because in your mind, this is an unquestionably better idea. Now you expect people to get on board and (laughs) you are baffled 
when people reject the idea and then it leads you to just believe people around here are just unreasonable <laughs> and you <laughs> not as visionary as me yeah yeah and you lose all hope i've heard that referred to in a slightly different context as the marathon effect which is when organizations are moving through change leaders cross the finish line first and they just kind of think everybody's finished but most yeah. other people are still somewhere on the course trying to figure out how to get up and down the hills yeah and the communication gets confused because the leaders have got one emotional experience of completing change and understanding it and i've done the whole thing and other mm -hmm. people are right at the beginning of the race yeah oh that's a beautiful metaphor for that but simply thinking about the dimension of time is just one mm. simple dimension of allowing people to acclimate so time and repetition yeah another approach that i think a lot about maybe just to share this one final technique is what I would call make favorable comparisons. Mm. I think a great rule of thumb, like if someone was looking for one practical idea, a great rule of thumb is the conventional approach to change or influence is you identify the thing you want people to do and you put it in front of them and you explain the benefits. But when you give people one path, one option, one idea, there is a point of comparison, mm. at least implicitly, unconsciously, they are comparing this new innovative idea against something and it is the status quo. Yeah. And for reasons we just explored, that is an unfavorable point of comparison. That's a friction against change. Yeah. So you might think anytime I'm offering people one path, maybe that's an alarm to suggest, aha, relativity is likely working against me here. And what you might begin to do is start creating points of comparison that break fixation. Because if, if I just say, hey, you've never done this before, try this thing, you compare <laughs> new against what's comfortable. Right. But if you put instead, there are often different paths that one could take. Mm. And if you use those as reference points, it doesn't mean you that you are selling people on multiple paths. Right. But what it means is now people begin to understand your idea in a broader, more favorable right. context, but it shifts fixation away from the status quo and instead gets people to think more about which of these new alternatives do I see as mm -hmm. most valuable. Yeah. A simple thing that I see people do is you see a problem, you identify a solution, and this is an ideal solution, but then you fear that ideal is asking for too much. So the thing you offer to people is the realistic solution. It's still a win for you as the innovator, yeah. but it's a compromised win. Mm. From looking at that through the science of relativity, that is a huge missed opportunity because anytime you remove ideal, put yeah. ideal back in the choice set mm -hmm. and give people ideal and realistic, right. idealistic and realistic, because by leaving idealistic in, it changes the way people think about the realistic option. The realistic option yeah. now seems more comfortable, more familiar. All of a sudden, you will find that some people will like ideal, and that's yeah. great. But even the way they think about the realistic option, it's now more comfortable and familiar. It's like anchoring in a price conversation. Yes. You go, hey, you know what? 
I'd normally charge you a thousand dollars to listen to this podcast, but this is only going to cost you a hundred bucks. Like, yeah, hundred bucks. It's a deal. I've got nine hundred dollars off. Yeah, like yeah. So I win that. Yeah, but in that kind of consumer domain, you know, yeah. a lot of that people draw their own views. Like a lot of that can feel like a ploy. Yeah, for but sure. I would argue when you're trying to create real change, a lot is it's nothing like a ploy because what right. you're actually doing is helping people that see the yeah, truer, totally. broader, more informed landscape. And yeah. it's just, you do believe that ideal is better, but just your fear of mm. it being a bridge too far means that you right. made that right. choice for them. Or you can leave inferior options in because part of the reason this idea is so exciting to you mm. is because you've seen all the other ideas out there. Yeah. But we only yeah. give them one. So we're not allowing people to see the idea in its context. Right. It's like walk the path with me to the idea yeah. rather than parachuting them in, in the middle of nowhere to yeah. a new idea. And they're like, well, I don't know the context. Yeah. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> I love metaphors. You can tell. Yeah. Hey, Lauren, I thought, you know, you talk about four things that drive resistance to new ideas. You talk about inertia, emotion, effort, and reactance. And I was particularly struck by the insight around emotion, which is like anxiety is the reaction to new ideas. And you've spoken a little bit about that, but do you have any ways to, I mean, you've almost spoken a little bit about how to manage anxiety in other people. I'm curious to know how to manage anxiety in yourself <laughs> because I've got a new book coming out at the moment and I'm feeling a little wound up about it and a little anxious about it. And I'm just curious to know, is there a framework or a way of thinking around how to be with anxiety or sit with anxiety or temper anxiety in some way? That's a great question. Sometimes the resistance that meets new ideas is my own resistance to my own new ideas. Yes. Here's an idea that I think is an important one for moments like this and has such broad application. And it's rooted in an idea that might be familiar to some because it's an idea that won Danny Kahneman a Nobel Prize mm. and it's loss aversion. And loss aversion to me is such a profound idea, but gets spoken about in really boring ways. Mm. And it's usually in some consumer choice, choice architecture kind of way. <laughs> right, right. But I think loss aversion is an idea that really speaks to some critical moments and moments akin to what you were talking about, which is something I'll, when I'm proposing that people try take risks and when I'm proposing that people, the class I teach in very much, it's about, there's a conventional sort of autopilot way of dealing with people, but we can be so much better if we're willing to see some of the problems with convention and go beyond autopilot and be to move from sort of convention to intention. But much of intentionality around people requires doing something a little different, right? Like planning, talking through a collaboration before it begins, that's a little different. And what I often encounter there are questions about, well, what if they think it's odd? Or what if, and it's what if around anxiety. And to me, it's like, what's the, the source of anxiety that I can certainly relate to here on, well, what if you put all this work in and they don't like it? What if you made a mistake? And what if you 
lose a friendship over the collaboration. Like all of these what ifs that are rooted in anxiety. I think that the real question that can be alleviate, if not entirely, but help you see things in context. Right. I would call this flipping the frame, but it's to ask, so what if you don't do these things? This is what I would say to myself or a person asking these kind of what if anxiety questions. You're focused on what can go wrong. Imagine you don't take this chance. What are the opportunities you're giving up? What are the possibilities you're saying no to? And think of those as opportunities slipping away. And I find that that was a behavioral science-driven technique in moments where I was feeling a lack of courage in this process. And when people are thinking about, do I go back to the company I know or do I pursue my dream job? Because they've got something, something certain lined up and you'll say, what's in the dream job? Well, I could make a difference. I could and I'll say, look, I get the downside. Can you repeat to me, what is it if you don't pursue this dream? What mm. are the possibilities? What are the opportunities you're saying no to? Yeah. And getting people to recast possibility in terms of mm. opportunity lost, I think can be very helpful for those anxieties because our mind wants to fixate on the negative so much and we downplay the opportunity. And this is a way to make sure the opportunity sits front and center. Thank you. That's really helpful. Lauren, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you. I love the poet you read. I loved your explanation of the poem in particular. That was lyrical in itself. As a final question, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and I? If I were to create a one paragraph summary of the idea of the book that I'd mm. like people to take away, because it plays off of this idea of loss aversion a bit, is there are two ways that we can create value and we can bring new ideas to life. One of them is to heighten appeal, to refine our ideas, to put new features and benefits on a product, refine, put more sizzle on the message. And this deep assumption people make, like the habit of the mind is to think the way you create value is by elevating appeal. Right. And we refer to this as thinking and fuel or a fuel-based mindset. Yeah. The idea I would ask people to consider, rather when your new idea is struggling, rather than assume that it's because it lacks sufficient appeal, that fuel is insufficient, assume instead that it's a great idea yeah. as a thought experiment and imagine instead that there are some things that are getting in the way, what we would call frictions, and imagine what those frictions are because the mind doesn't think about these frictions and therefore it's often the untapped resource. So like my a message I'd love to leave with people is that if you can spot the frictions that are holding people back, that is often the way you really unlock transformative change. All right, I'm just going to talk to myself now. Patience, Michael, patience. People need time. Give them time. But not passively. Don't just wait. Invite them to walk with you, shoulder by shoulder, towards what's next. It's in the walking that the magic happens. They become comfortable with you. They learn to care about you. They start seeing the new thing as something less strange, 
and something more familiar. Michael, and of course by Michael I'm talking to me, but to you as well, invite people in and walk with them. Two conversations that you might want to listen to if this one tickled your fancy. One with Katie Milkman, You Are Perfectly Imperfect is what that's called. She's just been named as one of the Thinkers 50s top thinkers around leadership. So you might want to check that out and check her book out as well. And then one of my favorite people, Dolly Chug, How and Why to Be Good-ish. If you want more about Lauren, you can find him at laurennordgren.com. So I'll spell that, L-O-R-A-N-N-O-R-D-G-R-E-N.com. And information about the book is at thehumanelement.com. Thanks for the love you're showing the show. It's through stars or through reviews or whatever it might be, or passing the word on. It's always very helpful if you use word of mouth, send some, just email somebody and say, listen to this podcast interview. You might enjoy it. One by one, we build a listenership. And I'll just say this as a final point. You're awesome and you're doing great. Thank you. <laughs>